Well, good morning. What a blessing to be together this morning to worship. I, I know that we have a taller senior pastor because this pulpit has been raised up and I feel shorter. Do I look shorter to you? I feel shorter. If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. This morning we are looking at verses 16 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles there in front of you. You'll find our text on page 984. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of Colossians. And as we do that, let me remind you what's at stake here. There's an influential voice that is speaking into the church, and it's contradicting the sound teaching of the apostles for a more acceptable one. A view of Christ that fits more with the prevailing culture around them. It reminds me of something that happened in my church planting days. One of our leaders had been reading several books touting what's called poverty theology. Now, you may not have heard of poverty theology, but I bet you've heard of its cousin, prosperity theology. That's the belief that God rewards greater faith with greater health and wealth. Poverty theology, in contrast, is the belief that a radical divesting of wealth is necessary to live as a true follower of Christ. Now, as a member of our leadership team, this leader had authority. He had influence. And because poverty theology has the sound and smell of truth, it began, it began to gain some traction with our leaders. Others, however, saw it as counterfeit and divisive. It became a huge distraction and was not only moving us away from our mission as a church, but even moving us away from the gospel. For two millennia, the church has endured such voices. Sincere and insincere individuals alike have sought to help the church get Jesus right. They've offered up views of Jesus that are easier to understand. They're, they're easier to stomach. They're easier to follow. But, but there's a danger here. A Jesus that you create, a, a Jesus that you imagine can't speak into your life. He can't meet your deepest needs. He can't change you. Why? Because He doesn't have the power to. You see, He's become just like you. In making Jesus more accessible, the unexpected and unthinkable has happened. His life and saving work have become inaccessible to you. They're useless. It should give us pause this morning as we consider who really shapes our view of Jesus. Is it the cultural voice of our day? Or is it the biblical voice of our God? Let's look at our text this morning and find out. Again, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we want our understanding of who Jesus is to be informed only by you and your word. And so, Father, would you teach us this morning, would you remind us of what is true, not only about Jesus, but what is true about us and our need of him. Holy Spirit, help us to see and to hear and to understand rightly today. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you to define leadership using one word, what would it be? Think of the leaders in your life, the leaders that you follow at home or at work or in your church community. What makes them a leader? Well, in a word, I think it's influence. A leader is someone who influences people. Tom Landry, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s and 80s once said that leadership is getting someone to do what they don't want to to do in order to achieve what they want to achieve. Now for him and other coaches like the great Joe Gibbs, that meant getting football players to do what was hard to do, what was physically demanding, what even caused them pain. Why? So that they could win a Super Bowl. By virtue of their influence, leaders are seen as authoritative. Their word carries a great deal of weight. We give them the right to speak into our life, to tell us how we should live, what we should give our lives to. The problem we often run into, of course, is that these authoritative voices are not infallible. Those we place our trust in are fallen, and their influence can have a detrimental even a destructive influence in our life. One of our moms related an incident that happened in her family this week. One of the children in the family had cheated in class. He had copied an answer to a math problem from a classmate's paper. Despite not getting caught, his conscience had assaulted him all day long. As he was going to bed that night, he confessed what he had done to his mom. Through tears, he said that all day long, the word cheater had bounced around in his head. He felt this accusatory voice relentlessly calling him a cheater. You're nothing but a cheater. You're no good. You're worthless. He felt condemned. After he finished, his mom very wisely pointed him to the truth of the gospel. You did cheat, but you're not a cheater. That's not your identity. That voice does not define who you are. God's voice defines who you are. You are His beloved because of what Jesus has done for you. Confess your sin to Him and trust Him that your sins are forgiven. What a priceless interaction between a mom and her son. But He's not alone. I can relate to that kind of condemnation too. Can't you? The voice of one who is not my heavenly father, seeking to condemn me and harass me, trying to convince me that God's mercy is not deep enough or wide enough to cover my sin, that my love for God is not real enough or true enough to deserve his love. I must pray more. I must give more. I must serve more to prove that I really belong to him. It's not hard to believe these lies, is it? They have the smell of truth to them. They sound right. 
So much so that we let them define our lives. We let them dictate the terms and conditions of what it means to be a Christian. And while these voices seek to rule our life, the the Apostle Paul has a different message, a more powerful message to rule our life by. And that message is found in the verse that precedes our text this morning. Look at verse 15 where Paul writes, He, that is Jesus, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Those judgmental, condemning voices have been stripped of their power. Jesus has disarmed the bomb of rightful condemnation that should have blown up in our face. How did he do that? Well, Pastor David gave us the answer last week from verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Our sin, our debt demanded payment. And Jesus paid the full price for our sin. There is no guilt left to satisfy. There is no wrath left to absorb. Jesus fully and completely took our sin upon Himself. It was nailed to the cross as Jesus was being nailed to the cross. So that the Apostle Paul could rightly say from Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of what? The law of sin and death. The very law these rulers and authorities sought to condemn you and me by. Because of Christ, the power of these condemning rulers and authorities have been taken away. They no longer have power and we needn't be afraid of them or defined by them. They have been defeated. You may remember a humorous scene from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban that illustrates this beautifully, I think. Professor Lupin is trying to teach the students how to perform the ridiculous spell against a Bogart. And the Bogart was a creature that takes the shape of what is most feared. The beloved Neville Longbottom is up first, and he tells Professor Lupin that his greatest fear is Professor Snape. As the Bogart emerges as Professor Snape, Neville shouts with one extended, ridiculous In an instant, Professor Snape's black academic robe changes. It changes into his grandmother's clothes to the delight of the students. Harry's friend Ron Weasley is up next, and his great fear is giant spiders. As the Bogart changes into a spider and heads toward him, he shouts, Ridiculous! In an instant, roller skates appear on each of the spider's legs. The spider cannot keep his legs up and repeatedly falls down. One by one, the students cast a ridiculous spell on their greatest fear. Each Bogart is put to open shame. Each student triumphs over the fear that defined their life. And in a way, Jesus has done the same for us as well. He has taken away the power and fear of those rulers and authorities. He has put them to open shame and triumphed over them but not with a spell. Rather, by His death and resurrection, He has broken the curse of sin. We who have suffered under the demands of the law have been set free. That's our reality. That's our hope. Hear the Reformer himself, Martin Luther, 
who captures that thought in a verse from his beloved hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we'll sing, Lord willing, on October 29th as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. He writes this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We do not fear the work or the rage of Satan. His power has been broken by Christ's power and his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And in our text this morning, Paul helps us work out the implications of this triumph in our life. And while these rulers and authorities have been stripped of their power, we confess that they still have a voice. They can still lead astray. And there are two specific voices that Paul is addressing with the Colossians. Two different approaches trying to get Jesus right. One approach says that the way to Jesus is through obedience. While the other says the way to Jesus is through spiritual experience. Sadly, these are just as relevant today as they were in Paul's day. They are still trying to dissuade people from seeing that the way to Jesus is through Jesus. The first group claimed that the way to Jesus was through obedience, specifically through observing the Jewish ceremonial law. We see that reflected in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, when we say ceremonial laws, what do we mean by that? Well, the ceremonial laws were were those mosaic laws that pertain to Israel's worship and her ritual holiness. They were given to show how God's people were to be set apart. Yet an important point must be made here. Their observance of the ceremonial law was not the basis of their holiness. It was not the cause of it. Rather, it was a sign of their holiness, their set-apartness. And the ceremonial law included dietary laws, which are outlined starting in Leviticus 11. There God gives Moses a detailed list of animals and fish and birds and insects that people couldn't eat. And if you were to look at the list, you might think, well, this seems somewhat arbitrary. But guess what? Nothing in God's economy is ever arbitrary. Often what he declared spiritually unclean was also physically unclean and not suitable for eating. And for those who had taken a Nazarite vow like Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, there were prohibitions against drinking wine and strong drink. In fact, number six tells us they weren't even allowed to have any juice that had grapes in it. For those Jews that were living in Gentile environments, they went a step further. They chose to abstain from all meat and wine. They did that in order to avoid possible ritual contamination. And in doing so, they they added their own restrictions to maintain purity. As is often the case, many of these man-made rules were treated like God-given laws. They were given the same authority and power, which created a burdensome yoke for the people. But it wasn't just dietary laws. There were also laws prescribing the observance of annual festivals, new moon monthly celebrations, and weekly Sabbaths. 
Each festival and celebration with its accompanying sacrifices highlighting the work of God, His work as a faithful provider, a gracious rescuer, a merciful Savior. Likewise, the weekly Sabbath was given to remind them of God's work, that He is God and they are not. The Sabbath was a call to trust, a call to give oneself to the Lord, a call to rest because of God's work. We know from the New Testament, however, that all of these ceremonial laws pointed beyond themselves. They were not ends in and of themselves. They pointed to something more substantial, something more real. Paul says in verse 17 that these were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belonged to Christ. They had the shape of something real, but they were just a shadow. As Mike had his flashlight up here, it reminded me of how much fun flashlights are. As a kid, we used flashlights on summer evenings to play flashlight tag. We also would use flashlights to help us see around the house when the power got knocked out. Or we use flashlights to read comic books under our covers at night. We even use flashlights to make shadow puppets on the wall. Did you ever do that? Where one person shines a light on the wall and then someone configures their hand to, into a shape of an animal. For the most part, I was shadow puppet challenged. I could make the shape of an eagle by configuring my hands like this. Not bad, right? I could also configure my hands in the shape of a dog. Uh, But that's where my uh, tricks end. Uh, Someone who's really good at it can do all kinds of amazing shapes of animals. It's amazing how lifelike they truly are. And yet at the end of the day, they're what? They're shadows. They're not real. They're not flesh and blood eagles or dogs or rabbits or whatever shape you can make. They're merely shadows of those animals. Which is better? A shadow puppet or a real dog? Well, obviously a real dog. Why? Well, because he's the real thing. You can't pet a shadow. The dietary laws were a shadow of what only Christ could do. Dietary laws couldn't affect real purity. Jesus himself said in Matthew fifteen eleven, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That defiles a person. Keeping dietary laws can't produce a pure heart because they can't change a heart. But Jesus, who is the bread of life, He is able to satisfy not only our spiritual hunger, He is also able to remove the source of our impurity. It is His life, it is His righteousness credited to us that makes us pure. The sacrifices that were offered yearly, monthly, weekly, even daily couldn't effect real and lasting forgiveness either. The writer in Hebrews 10 captures the shadow-like nature of the law and sacrifices. He writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
The very fact that these sacrifices were continually made shows us that they were just shadows. They showed us the need for a true Savior, one who could fully and finally take away the curse of our sin. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The work belongs to Christ and Him alone. You may say, oh, that's all well and good. But I'm not really looking to dietary laws to give me a pure heart. Perhaps a healthy heart, but not a pure heart. And yet it is so easy to turn our health into something that we judge others by and ourselves by. We can think, you know, if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't be overweight. Or if you, if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't have an eating disorder. Or if you really were a Christian, you would treat your body as a temple and only eat food that comes from the ground. When we think that way, when we speak that way, we're looking at a shadow and not substance. We are defining Christianity as Jesus plus something else. Again, you say, well, that's all fine, but I'm certainly not looking to the sacrificial system to atone for my sin. That's, that's too Old Testament for me. And yet it's so easy to use the Sabbath as something that's made for God and not for man. We may think, if you were really a Christian, you would attend both morning and evening worship services. I heard that a lot growing up. We also might think, if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't eat out on Sunday. We might also say, if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't plant flowers or pull weeds on the Sabbath. Again, when we think or speak this way, we are looking at a shadow and not substance. We are defining Christianity as Jesus plus Sabbath practices. There are other shadows that we could add to this list like smoking, drinking alcohol, voting Democrat, voting Republican, being pro-choice. The list really is endless. But the bottom line is this. Anything we try and add to Jesus will keep us in the shadows, will amount to nothing. Are you living in the shadows Are you looking to add something to Jesus' perfect work? Paul would call you and me to come out of the shadows. To drop whatever it is that we are trying to add to Jesus' work and embrace Him alone. The second group, quickly, Paul addresses has gone to the other extreme. Whereas the first group looked to objective truth as their guide, this group looked to subjective truth. They claim that the way to Jesus was through ecstatic spiritual experiences. We see this reflected in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This group had jettisoned God's word for a spiritual experience. What matters to them is not what the Bible says. Rather, what matters most is their personal experience with the Lord. The Bible is really just an afterthought for them. Experience trumps everything. Like the first group, their approach has the sound of truth to it. We value personal experience in our very individualistic culture. In fact, it's very hard to speak against someone's personal experience, which is why this approach is so very dangerous. These false teachers were trumpeting a kind of super spirituality that involved asceticism. Now, the NIV translates this word as false humility. And I think that's a really good translation. Commentators 
likely think that Paul is referring to a perverted view of fasting here. A kind of fasting that was elevated above other spiritual disciplines. Lifted up as an essential mark of true spirituality. Jesus addressed this kind of fasting with his disciples in Matthew 6 when he said, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. That's false humility. That's what Paul is talking about. This kind of fasting pleases only the one who does it. They not only elevated fasting, though, they also elevated angels and worshipped them. They regarded them in a way that was not prescribed. Now, commentators really aren't sure exactly what Paul means by this worship of angels. But what's most likely going on here is really more of a pagan practice. These false teachers were invoking or conjuring up angels as a means to ward off evil in Colossae in the region. And Paul viewed their calling on these angels for protection as the same as worshiping or venerating these angels. They continue to make their case for a super spirituality through these visions that they went on and on about. It's possible these visions were induced through their fasting or or through this angelic worship. We're not sure. However, we are sure that these visions were a source of great pride. And that's where the problem was. You see, God-given visions don't lead those who receive them to arrogance, but to godliness. Even Paul, when he wrote about his vision in 2 Corinthians 12, refused to boast in his visions. In fact, God used these visions to do what? To keep him from pride and arrogance rather than promote it. As you can imagine, this super spirituality caused these false teachers to be puffed up, which is Paul's way of saying they were full of hot air. Their super spirituality made them feel spiritually elite. And they sought to disqualify those who were not. They saw them as lesser saints, even unspiritual. I suppose it's likely that you have been on the receiving end of this kind of treatment. Depending on your spiritual and church background, you may have been harmed by the spiritually elite. Those who see themselves as spiritually superior because of their experience or their theology or their piety, or their devotion to the Lord. We need to take Paul's encouragement to heart and not let anyone disqualify us because of their super spirituality, which really is neither super or spiritual. But it's also likely that you have been on the giving end of this kind of treatment too. Depending on your background, you may have seen yourself as being spiritually elite. You possess the right theology the right Bible translation, the right kind of family, and the right kind of devotion to the Lord. You can feel puffed up in your mind so that you are no longer trusting in Christ. Rather, you are trusting in your rightness. Whether you are an offender or the one offended, Paul's word is the same. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to your head. He is the source of your life. And the church's life. He is the one that unites the body together. He is the one who brings the right kind of spiritual growth. Do you know Him as your head? Are you looking to Him alone? If not, come out of the shadows and into His light. There's usually not any math in sermons. 
but I want to end with two equations. The first is this. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus obedience to the law. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus dietary considerations. Jesus plus Sabbath practices. Jesus plus political parties. Jesus plus anything else gets you nothing. On the flip side, the second equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And there is no grading curve on this math problem. It is either pass or fail. You either get it right or you don't. Which will it be for you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, how easy it is for us to add something to your perfect work, to contribute something to our salvation in Christ Jesus. Help us to see that there's nothing that we can do, nothing we can bring that will commend us to you. Would you give us your grace to hold fast to Jesus alone? Call us out of the shadows and into the light of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.